You have downloaded ASI, episode 146. I'm Russ Shaw, your host. podcast is brought to you by my Android phone. If you don't like the sound quality, remember, you didn't pay anything for it. May I have your attention, please? May I have your attention, please? Will the real Slim Shady please stand up? I repeat, will the real Slim Shady please stand up? We're going to have a problem here. Y'all act like you never seen a white person before. I'm like a head trip to listen to. Cause I'm only giving you things you joke about with your friends inside your living room. The only difference is I got the balls to say it in front of y'all. And I don't gotta be false or sugarcoated at all. And there's a million of us just like me who cuss like me, who just don't give a f like me, who dress like me, walk, talk, and act like me. And just might be the next best thing, but not quite me. I'm Slim Shady, yes, I'm the real shady. All you other Slim Shady's Oh, yeah, Slim Shady. A great example of this pride in brokenness metaphor and how it's this kind of survival tactic and it very much is conformity. That is Crystal Myers and Eminem. I know, good mixture, right? <laughs> Slim Shady is this character that I think part of Eminem's success is bringing up this character that we can all identify with, the Slim Shady in all of us. By the way, I don't mind the imitating, right? I am an imitator. I am. This is uh, this whole show is imitated. It's it's a conglomeration of things that I've been inspired by. And uh, yes, eighty percent of the things I say on the show, there's stuff that I got from other people, right? I'm a I'm a I'm an imitating. Okay, so, yeah, anyway, uh, conformity, though, all right, it's from Shady, everybody wants to be the badass, I don't know, everybody's a comedian, you hear that a lot, all right, you got me, probably more than 80%, all right, and I did kind of slice that song up a little bit to play the parts that I, I like and, and uh, appeal to me, so, because I'm selfish, anyway, uh, just, hey, just admitting, right? I'm just coming clean here. I'm just being real, Joe. Anyway. You know, the Bible talks about coarse joking, and basically what Eminem does 
with this slim shady character really exposing the roots of the identity of what that is, right? Why we do that. Getting to I'm always fascinated with artists who can press on those issues and get us to look at what why do I do that? Right? Why do you do that? Because you're, you're slim shade. That's why. Well, I'm just being real, Russ, man. I'm just telling it like it is. Yeah, well, I think you're also conforming with the inner slim shady in you, okay? there's one. It's one thing to be honest and real. It's one thing to be broken and stay that way. And I think that... Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> the whole Slim Shady character really exposes that, that kind of thing, right? Um, in the music video that he made back, I think this was like 1999 or something like that, uh, he had a bunch of kids that were like 100 extras that he dressed up to look exactly like him, right? They all had the white T-shirts, they all had the blonde hair, they all had the, you know, kind of proud look on their face, you know, kind of walking in a straight line of conformity, okay, and I think that's another positive thing about Eminem and Slim Shady, showing that this bad boy kind of badass attitude isn't rebellious, it's conformity. Check this out. If you want to download any of this music that I play on the show, you go to the website. It's ASI247.org. It used to be Digital Audio Project. Um, it, it's not anymore. It, Digital Audio Project was way too long, and it was like wearing out people's keyboards. And now that you've got a smartphone, you know, you're pushing all them buttons, you don't want to do that. So just go to ASI247.org, you click on the music tab, you can download all of the music in its entirety, like right off of iTunes or Amazon or what have you. Um, so there's that. Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter... If you're tweet-savvy, uh, the tweets are on there, the Twitters. If you're in touch with your inner bird, it's right there on the website. Uh, Facebook, of course, big Facebook, right? Facebook's a lot easier to use. That my Facebook's also. Also, tell me that you listen to the show. I've actually turned down friend requests lately because I don't know the people who are sending friend requests. If you tell me you're a listener to the show, I will accept your friend friend request. If you don't, I don't know you and I just ignore you or deny the friend request. So there's that. There's Facebook. Boom, got that out of the way. Conformity, big topic. I've been preparing for this topic for some time wanting to talk about it, uh, listening to lectures by John Frame as part of the inspiration for this show, uh, the whole series of shows in the Decalogue, and listening to some music by the band Good Charlotte as well. Good Charlotte's actually named after uh, a book, a um, children's book actually, about an orphan named Charlotte, <laughs> the band. A little bit of music trivia for you there. So, yeah, John Frame, brilliant man, talking about uh, the Tenth Commandment. And really what uh, hit me is conformity. And I started studying some stuff in sociology because sociology and social psychology is all about studying. It's all about, I mean, covetousness. God puts the Tenth Commandment out there and says, be content, right, with who you are, with how God made you behind your eyes, with your gifts, your talents, your abilities, and your weaknesses. Learn to not 
covet what other people have. And we are a very covetous culture. I'm coming from you. I'm coming from you. Uh, sorry. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm just I'm just going here today, all right? I don't have a lot of notes. But, again, this has been in my head for a while, so bear with me. <laughs> I'm coming at you today from the USA, United States of America, and Seattle, Washington, which is uh, up in the corner of the U.S., we are a very culture, artsy-driven kind of city and culture. We're also a very commercial-driven kind of culture. When I say commercial, I mean marketing. Um, there's, it just permeates the culture here, as well as it does in the United States. If you look at an ad, a lot of it has to do with, in marketing, a lot of it has to do with you get a guy who's successful or a woman, and you put them up as your, your spokesperson. My wife sells Avon. Uh, she's an Avon rep and, and makes money for our house and doing Avon. She's, my, she's an Avon lady, right? And, and every year, Avon gets a new person to promote some product or some new perfume or something like that, and it's usually a celebrity. Um, and they did, uh, Derek Jeter had a sense for Avon and he did a cologne because people tend to do that. People tend to see a successful person, right? They got their stuff together on the surface and we tend to want to buy or do or be that person. It's part of what we do. It's part of our makeup, isn't it? I was in the Bible, studying the Bible, there's no, the word addiction doesn't exist in the Bible, but if you study addiction and you start to learn what these words mean, because the Bible wasn't written in English, right? Slavery. The word slavery is written about dozens of times. If you, if you do a word search on slavery in the Bible, you're going to find a lot of stories about slavery, especially in the book of Exodus. Um, slavery is alive and well in 2011. Can I just tell you that? All right? It's not just enslaving a people and making them right prisoner. It, the, slavery is, is more than that. It's deeper than that. All right? Uh, addicts are slaves. Conformists are also slaves. Well, you're going to be a slave. <laughs> it's oh, not always good news. Is that good news? It, it is, and it depends on what you're being a slave to. That's what we do, man. We pour out all of the time. We conform. Going into theology, under the psychology, going to things written about thousands of years ago, not getting into what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery, thinking that because we live in 2011, we're way smarter than the people that lived thousands of years ago. And no, we're not. When it comes to heart issues, we're really not. In a lot of cases, we're dumber, and we have a lot more issues than they did because of chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis would put it. Like we get this kind of information addiction, you know? There's a, there's a cool story in, uh, again, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, where this angel is trying to coax this guy out of out of hell and into heaven, right? They're in this in-between place, and that's the premise of the book, which is good theology, by the way. The God of the Bible doesn't grab dirty little sinners like a piece of paper, crumpling them up and throwing them into the wastebasket of hell. That's not correct theology. We go there willingly. 
if, if anything, the God of the Bible, it, Jesus, is trying to right get us to see grace, get us to see love, get us to understand how much He loves us. All right. So, in the story, the angel comes to the guy and says. Um, you know, what are you doing? And the guy's like studying all these books and he's studying all this information. And I don't remember how C.S. Lewis tells it way better, but I'm just trying to go by memory. He's studying this stuff because he wants to better his life, right? And he's just into this information. And the guy, the angel is telling him stuff and telling him stories and, you know, loving on him to try and get him out of, out of hell and into heaven. And he stops thinking for a minute and he starts to listen to the guy. And then the guy says something and he and then he all of a sudden, you know, his energy changes. And what comes flowing out of him is, Oh my gosh, that's some really good information. I've got to bring that back to the guys in the committee, right? Back in hell. So he's gonna run back to hell with this new information that he learned and it's just the angel kind of bows his head and walks away, and it's like as the guy goes running back to the bus that's going to return to hell. Um, this is this is what we do, and and through years and years of religion and psychology and books and information, it's kind of like. Here's a here's another metaphor for you. Here's a good emotional word picture, if you will, understand the attitude behind this. There, there's a guy in Indiana who who has a, a he had a baseball, right? Everybody needs a hobby, I guess, and this was just this guy's hobby, and now it's like a roadside attraction. I actually put it on my Facebook this morning. I thought it was hilarious, <laughs> but anyway, he. He, is, he has a baseball, and he paints the baseball one day. And then he doesn't like that color, so he paints it another color. And then he paints it again. And then, a year later, he paints it again. And it's like the size of a grapefruit. And he keeps painting it, and he keeps painting it. For 30 years, this guy's been painting this baseball, and now it's like the size of a, of a weather balloon, right? And it's hanging from this cable in his, uh, I don't know, his shed, his garage, I don't know. But... It's just weird. Anyway, but information's kind of like that. We love information as human beings. We don't like the application of that information. And I think what we do, you know, like diets do work, okay? I've even said that before. Well, diets don't work. It's not that the diets don't work. It's that our motivation to do the diets isn't sufficient, so we don't do the – we quit. And then we try another diet. I just need a diet that's going to fit me, Russ, and then I'll lose all this weight. I heard this commercial today, and they're like, it's positive something. I'm not going to name the company. Uh, but anyway, they, they positive uh, dieting or, no, positive lifestyle. They call it that, right? And at the end of the commercial, they go, along with um, if when the guy stuck to his diet plan, he, they, they lost X amount of pounds, and then they did the testimonies, right? Listen, if we could stick to the diet plan, we wouldn't need the positive lifestyle book or program, or, right? It's all about the motivation. It's all about the application of the information we learned and our attitude behind why we would actually do those things. So, in turn, the little, you know, defense attorney pops up on our shoulder and says, you know, just, you, 
You know what, Russ? You really like cheeseburgers, so you need to find a diet that is suitable to you and accommodates your love for cheeseburgers. You know, the little red lizard in his business suit looking like the, you know, defense attorney, your personal defense attorney. And the reason we do that is because we think that we're the point. That's, that's what we're doing when we do that. When we throw another coat of paint on the baseball, we run for instruction instead of application because it's all about I'm the point. Like I'm, it's my comfort. It's my security. So when it gets uncomfortable, boom, a defense attorney comes up. You know what? You don't like red. Maybe you should paint it blue. So we throw another coat of paint on the baseball. You know, and, and over the years and over the centuries, there's just been more and more information thrown on the heap, okay? We just keep reaching for information. It's like a weird little idolatry thing. That's really what's going on. We want God's job. We take God's job description and we try and fill his shoes by putting ourselves on the throne of our own hearts. And it just doesn't work long term. And it's not just information. Another one, besides information as a coat of paint over the baseball, is relationships. Some of you, like myself, are good at making short-term friends. Like you're good at making, um, making people like you. And it's easy, especially for a lot of you single folks, to just jump in and out of relationships for you. And I think what that does, not only does it hurt the other people that you're in relationship with, you know, because you just, you don't call them back, or you just, uh, you know, you're not a very good friend. I'm, I'm that way too. I repent of that, of being a shallow, fair-weathered friend. But, Again, with you single folks, you can get in relationships with people who write love interests and your definition of love being kind of shallow like that and asking for someone to make you happy. You know what I'm saying? That's another coat on the baseball. Your defense attorney pops up when the relationship gets difficult, which it will. If you're going to be in relationship with other sinful human beings, eventually they will sin against you, all right? They're going to be annoying. They're going to do something wrong. They're going to offend you, all right? They will. Everybody will if you're in relationship with them long enough. So instead of sticking with it, in the relationship, what you tend to do, what we tend to do is, boom, another coat of paint on the baseball, right? See, I wish you were sitting across the table from me, you know? I wish I could see your face so I could know that whether or not you get the rhymes as I spit them. I don't know. I know. It's, this doesn't, it doesn't rhyme, Russ. Knock it off. Try, stop trying to be so, stop trying so hard to be cool. I don't know. Here you go. Uh, I'm going to play a tune, a little bumper for you here to express my point. Some Mr. President, and then we'll get into studying this thing called conformity. Put me up.
I play that song, and what I am saying is we try and take God's job description, all right? What I'm not saying is you should just stick with some behavior modification or some diet that doesn't work or stay in some relationship with some jerky boyfriend or girlfriend that it's not that's not working right now if you're married that's a different deal if you're married you've entered into a blood covenant okay that's a different kind of a thing but if you're not married, you know, you're, and you see that maybe that's what you do, just running from bad relationship to bad relationship, you know, painting another layer on the baseball, so to speak, uh, that may be you. Um, so what I'm not saying is that you just continue to beat your head against the wall, all right? That's the definition of insanity, trying to repeat something that doesn't work over and over again and expecting a different result, right? That's not, it's not healthy. And it's also a great segue to uh, me talking about psychology, right? Check this out. Uh, some American history on psychology. Floyd and Gordon Alport were uh, back in the early part of the 20th century, around the 1920s, um, were psychologists. Uh, from Indiana. One of them uh, became more of a, a behavioralist of patterns of personality and stuff like that, Gordon Alport. And his brother, uh, Floyd Alport, became one of the pioneers of what we know today as social psychology. Um, so, you know, they kind of had this disagreement even between brothers where one of them was more focused on the individual and how the individual thinks, and, and the other one was more on the situation, right? How does how does the situation, how does um, the social structure, how does influence from the outside impact who we are on the inside, right? So here's a funny little side story for you. Gordon Alport goes to Vienna to see Sigmund Freud, all right? Famous psychologist, probably the most famous psychologist that ever lived, Sigmund Freud, huge impact and influence in the psychological community still today, although most of, uh, like they said at Yale, in the psychology department at Yale, they said the only thing you're going to find of Sigmund Freud's at Yale today is in the history department of psychology. But anyway, uh, so... Gordon Alport goes to Vienna to visit Sigmund Freud, right? It's like, it, it's like you know, they're both atheists, so um, uh, Gordon Alport is going to visit, he's going to Mecca, I don't know. He's going to meet with his, his uh, priest or rabbi, or I, I don't know, just, all right. Atheists are religious people, too. They, they really are. Um, just different kind of religion. A theist religion. <laughs> it's, still, it's still very much a kind of religion. It's a belief system, right? It is what you do with God. You don't believe he exists, so that's what you you parked him in that category. That's your religion. Anyway, moving on. Here's the deal. Uh, so he gets to Vienna. He meets with Sigmund Freud, and he's excited. He's, like, kind of nervous. And so he starts to tell this the story, you know, kind of break the ice about this kid that he saw on the train, and Sigmund Freud sitting there listening to him, you know, kind of leaning back, stroking his beard, you know, you can see it, right? And he and he leans forward after Gordon Alport finishes his story, and he goes, "You sir, have a dirt fetish." And Gordon Alport's like, "What? 
what? You know, like, what does that even mean, dude? You know, I was like, well, I, you know, I came all this way, and you tell me I have a dirt fetish? Like, I was just trying to make small talk, you know? And so <laughs> Gordon Alport is, is, is offended by this comment and this interaction, and as a result, um, there's kind of a debate in the psychological community on this, you know, this a series of events leading to why American psychology really distanced itself from Freudian psychology, all right? I mean, that's just something that they talk about. It couldn't be because a lot of Freudian psychology is just bananas. <laughs> it could be. It's not because it's lame. No, it's because of this interaction. I don't know. So you, you take – it's just a funny story. I liked it, so I thought I'd throw it in there. A lot of this material, by the way, I got from Professor Rob Willer at Berkeley University. Love Professor Rob. Um, brilliant teacher. Brilliant uh, – it's just a very entertaining guy to listen to. But, yeah, that's Gordon, Gordon Alport's little meeting with Sigmund Freud. I'd love to do a whole show on Freud. He's just, he's such a lovable, crazy, intellectual nerd slash nut. <laughs> anyway. And listen, I'm not judging Sigmund Freud for being a nut or a loop job or a jack wagon. I don't know these different names. Uh, because everybody who studies psychology is busted and broken, and I think they're trying to figure other people out as a way of not realizing what they're trying to do is really figure themselves out. So <laughs> if, you're, if you're interested in psychology or if you're a counselor, uh, you're welcome if you haven't realized that already. But anyway, Sigmund Freud. We can't ignore the fact that this guy made a major impact on the profession of psychology and uh, even social psychology. And some of his some of his thoughts are fascinating, but his attitudes are a little creepy. And he's all about sex, right? I mean, everything's about how you didn't get some. I don't know. It's uh, anyway. What is conformity? You say? I'm glad you asked. Yeah. This is from the Sociology Dictionary, uh, Conformity. Human behavior which follows the established norms of a group or society. The bulk of human behavior is a conforming nature as people accept and internalize the values of their culture or their subculture. That is from uh, the Sociology Dictionary. Another... Uh, Definition. Here's from dictionary.com, the way they define conformity. An action in accord with prevailing social standards, attitudes, practices. So, Floyd Alport in 1924 designed the first modern lab study of conformity, focused on the effects and the pressures of conformity in a social psychological experiment, right? This is the first purely soci sociology, social psychology. I get those mixed up, right? Um, anyway, you get what I'm saying. It's the first purely uh, social psych study. Um, and basically, there was other studies, but they weren't um, on the topic of conformity like this one. What does conformity do to an individual in a group? And how can we weigh that, measure that, see that, and look at it? So Floyd Alport in 
airport, takes, I can't remember how many people there were, but there, let's say there's 100 people, right? He takes 50 people and he puts them in group A. He takes another 50 people and he puts them in group B. And what he does is he tells all of the people, I'm going to bring you into a room and I want to, I want your opinion on how these odors in these cylinders smell, okay? So he wants to test what they think about you know, certain smells of things, right? Isn't that the kind of study you just want to be a part of? Like, where do I sign up for that? I want to, I want to judge what things smell like. Well, what? Ooh, that's rancid, you know. So anyway, what he does is Group A goes in, and they all smell stuff. But what he does is he he lets one person in at a time. One person goes in, he closes the door. Person two goes in, he closes the door. Person three goes in and on up to 50, right? And then he takes all those numbers and he uh, puts them all together to find out, you know, the average of what everybody thought about certain smells. But then he takes group B and he brings in two to three people at a time, right? Instead of one person at a time going in and smelling things, he has two people. He has three people go in at a time, and they write down their scores, and he scores them based on these little groups, right? And what he found was very interesting. He found that the people that went in as group B didn't tend to judge the smells with as much passion and verve as people who went in and judged the smells in group A, okay? The people that went in with somebody else or with a couple of other people tended to not have such a massive emotional reaction to the things they were smelling, whereas in group B, people used more colorful language to describe the things that they were smelling, if you, you get my drift, right? So a simple finding was that people tend to avoid making extreme judgments in the presence of others, okay? Um, Alport, Alport called this the moderation effect. And here's something, I've seen this, being a guy who drives around all day, I see this uh, a lot, okay? Like, you don't hear people that stand in line in, in like a, a bank or, you know, an amusement park or at a concert. People who stand in line don't, don't tend to have line rage, right? I mean, maybe sometimes at the club somebody tries to cut in and there's a, you know, a scuffle breaks out. But most of the time, it, it's road rage. Road rage is something you hear about because people tend to sit in their cars and make judgment calls by themselves or with their family of peers on other people's driving, right? Because that person can't hear them. Now, if that person could hear them, they would probably not have the same uh, judgment calls and extreme emotional reaction to the way that somebody else is driving. Just an observation that I've seen um, when it comes to this moderation effect. I thought that was really interesting. Um, Anyway, people people tend to moderate 
in their judgments in a group. Like you've probably done this yourself. Like if you're in a group of people and you don't know what all the other people are thinking about a topic, like say a movie. Um, did you see this movie? And somebody says, oh, yeah, that movie sucked. And you really like the movie? Well, you're not going to just, you know, enter into a huge, massive conflict and maybe, I don't know, maybe you will. Maybe you're that guy. I don't know. But most of us, right, we're going to uh, tend to, you know, go the other way. This also goes to integrity, doesn't it? And it's funny how also Freud, uh, Gordon, not Gordon, but his brother Floyd Alport kind of used some Freudian terminology in the way that he uh, wrote his um, conclusion to this study. He wrote that there is an instinctual submission to the group, right, or pack. That's kind of Freudian kind of language, isn't it? Uh, but it, it's just interesting that we don't tend to give our strongest opinion in the midst of other people. And basically, you know, the conclusion is that in a group, our attitudes seem to conform or tend to conform to that of the group. Is, is that not true? Of course it is. You know, you're asked, you're asked your opinion about something in a group of people, and you're like, uh, well, I, I, uh, well, what do you think? You know, I mean, it goes to uh, integrity, right? Well, what kind of integrity do you have as a person? Are you going to stand up for what you believe in, or are you going to, you know, depending on your attitude, is it that big a deal? You pick your battles. I don't know. But anyway, it's just an interesting study on uh, the the voraciousness of protecting uh, our opinions, right? Or our belief systems, or where we stand on something. Okay, the next conformity study was by a guy named Mosar Sharif. I think I'm pronouncing that right. From Turkey. He was uh, from Turkey, immigrated to America, became a very famous American social psychologist. And uh, you probably heard this, this speech. You probably heard this study before if you've been to college and studied any kind of psychology whatsoever. This is a pretty common study that's talked about in psych classes. So Sharif's big passions were things like norm formation and intergroup conflict, and he was fascinated with this kind of stuff, kind of like I am. So Sharif had this huge impact on the way that people think about coming together of social norms, right? How is it that social norms evolve? And, and he really had a huge impact on the way people think today in social psychology about conformity. In this study, he really wanted to find out what is it the case that we obey a norm, right? What, at what point do we cross that line from I'm the individual over here to obeying some sort of social norm that's put out in front of us. And here's another fun little piece of information about Mr. Sharif and his personality. Uh, Mr. Sharif would go to work wearing a cape, right? Like, like seriously, he'd wear a cape to the lab or wherever, whatever he was doing. I mean, as a social psychologist, the man, the man wore a cape. Like he was Dracula or Batman or something like that. I don't know. I'll throw that in there for you. It's like what? He wore he wore a cape. Um, okay, our our doctor's wearing a cape. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's 
teeth sharp? Is his skin pasty white? I don't know. And that's another funny thing that Professor Willer uh, informed us too that he would also wear a cape with like short sleeves, right? Like uh, I don't know, is that like white after Labor Day? Uh, cape with short sleeves? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't know why he did that, but uh, Mr. Sharif wore a cape. Anyway, interesting little side note on Mr. Sharif. So anyway, what Sharif needed was some kind of a stimulus that he could use to kind of push things around. He needed something ambiguous to help the group come up with its own kind of conclusion for the right answer. So basically he was looking for something where there is really no right answer so he could use that to push around with social pressure where, where the answer would land, right? So Sharif was reading some scientific papers and documentation and studying this, you know, how can I come up with an ambiguous thing that I can test subjects on in the matter of conformity. And he found this thing called the autokinetic effect. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's, it's the tendency that human beings have to not be able to place in our mind, uh, for example, a, a piece of light. Pilots have this. It's an autokinetic effect. It seems like the runway lights way off in the distance are moving around when they're not. They're actually stationary. But to us, it looks like they're moving around. Um, if you put a, a pinpoint of light on a dark wall, like say you're at the movie theater and they turn off all the lights and it's just dark inside the movie theater and somebody takes a laser pointer and don't do that, by the way. You bring a laser pointer, right? Some usher is going to kick your ass. So don't do that. You get what I'm saying, right? You take a laser pointer, you put it right in the center of the screen and you say you have a machine that holds it there, you know, you put it on a tripod or something and it will, if you ask the audience, the audience will say, um, that light is moving, you know, it's moving around. That's one thing that's hard for us to measure where if, if something is staying, like a piece of light is staying stationary in one place. So, Sharif is finding out this, this scientific fact of autokinetic effect, decides to do his study. So what Sharif did is he would put, he did exactly that, like my movie theater uh, analogy. He put people in a room and he put a light against the wall. Now this probably wasn't a laser because it was 1936. I don't think lasers would have been invented. But anyway, you get what I'm saying, right? He put a, a, a light on the wall and maybe it was coming out the other side or something. I don't know. But he would he would have two different groups, kind of like the moderation effect. He would have two different groups. He'd bring in some people one at a time. And he would ask them, all right, how much is that dot moving? And people would answer anywhere between a couple of inches to a couple of feet, right? And so all the people that, that came in individually, you know, he tallied their score and, and how much they, they tended to, you know, right, how, how all over the place the statistic was. And then he took a bunch of people, groups of people, and this was either two people or three people. And he'd bring them into the theater, so to speak, and he would sit them down and say the same thing. But they could come up with their conclusions out loud and talk about it. And he would do this in order. Like, he wouldn't just let them just banter. <laughs> he would call on a person, you know. So if there was one guy who was more influential in a group than another guy, he would usually pick up, he'd, he'd pick that guy last, you know. Find the loud guy and let's, let's ask him last 
let's ask the quiet person first, to get a good even flow for the study to make sure that no one was influenced by the, the loud guy. Um, and what he found was that people tend to um, conform to what they think everybody else thinks it is moving when the light isn't moving at all. But if, if two people in the group said the light was moving a couple inches, everybody said, oh, well, it's moving about a quarter inch or it's moving a couple inches or, you know. And then if somebody in the group said it's moved, wow, that moved like a foot. Um, the other guy in the group would say, oh, it's about eight inches. The other guy would say, it's like a foot in a, in a couple inches, you know. So it, this was a really uh, interesting study on proving the fact that we tend to conform in a group when we don't know the answer. Because, you know, in this situation, there is no right answer. So we tend to rely on other people to help us come up with a conclusion uh, on what we don't know the answer to. Very interesting study to me. And another cool thing about the Sharif study is he also tested the people again, right? Like, they, the people that went into the test with the, the groups, right, and they, well, how far did the dot move? And they all said uh, four inches. So everybody kind of right in the four-inch range. All those people were tested again individually. And interestingly enough, they answered the same. They answered the same as they did in the group. And this also shows our tendency to say, all right, well, the group is right. The majority of people think this way, um, so that must be the right answer. And where the people that were tested individually, they went back into being tested in a group, and then they tended to not stick with their original, right? Most of them didn't stick with their original, uh, what they wrote down the first time, but they tended to conform to the group norm, all right? It's just very interesting to me. So it, this kind of shows that it's kind of like, well, you know what they say, you know, that kind of thing. We tend to, as human beings, think that if everybody's got the same opinion, then that must be the right opinion to have because the majority believes that way. That is conformity. And what this shows is genuine influence, all right? For social scientists, what that means is this is science. Like you could write it down, you can measure the data, and you can see that the group is influencing the outcome of people's decisions. When we don't know the right answer, we are less likely to entertain any kind of individual opinion about what is going on because we don't know. And more often than not, scientifically proven by the Sharif study, we will conform or conjugate our ideas and thoughts to those of the group. Those are the two big studies that I wanted to talk about because they really shed some light on conformity. And what does this have to do with the overcoming addiction, Russ? What does this have to do with fighting addiction? It has everything to do with it. You'll hear a lot of recovery folks ask, all right, who are you hanging around? You need to get new friends, all right? Some of them will be kind of legalists and say you just need to dump your friends altogether, get a whole new batch of new ones, and never associate with those people again. 
Um, I don't tend to believe that, but I do believe you need to be honest about whether you're influencing or being influenced. Remember, one of the cool things about these studies is it really shows a person's level of integrity. All right? So when you're in a social structure, if your old friends constantly and continually are influencing you towards your old habits, old behaviors, old attitudes and ways of thinking, then yes, you need to take a break from those folks for a while. And sometimes what happens is that you start to do some changing and your heart starts to change and you no longer want to, you know, be involved in some of those kind of really profane conversations about women, for example. You you start to distance yourself from those conversations, not because you have to, but because you want to, right? Not because you're a prude, but because you have a different way of viewing women, um, your spouse, you, maybe you have a sister, right? Maybe you bring that up, I don't know. But what I'm saying is that sometimes what you'll find is that your relationships will have a expiration period, okay? And some of those relationships will expire if you change. Like you'll have friends that are so kind of egotistical or they're more like um, leachy sponges in relationship, like a vampire, <laughs> going back to the vampire analogy, you may have friends that are vampires and what they do instead of giving in relationship is they just kind of suck off of their friends, like sucking off of you and when you're no longer there to be, you know, kind of drained, they will probably find a, another friend or not want to hang around you. I mean, sadly, that's what happens with a lot of really shallow relationships. I saw this film where this guy's like, you know what, tell me, tell me two real friends that you have. And uh, he's got, oh, I've got all sorts of friends. Yeah, but tell me, just give me two. Give me two real ones that'll be there when the chips are down, that aren't just fair-weathered friends. And the guy's like, wow, you know, I don't, I don't even have two real friends. This is, this is what I'm talking about, all right? Yeah, it's great to have acquaintances. It's great to have, um, Jesus had like the 72, and then he had the 12 disciples, and then he had the three, right? Like he had John and Peter and, you know, tight-knit group of, of dudes that he really shared intimate stuff with. Um, who are those people for you? Do, you? do you even have them? All right. Who who is influencing you, and how are you being influenced? Also, I talked about in the beginning of this series, the Decalogue, about immune neglect. If you think that you're just staying alone, so conformity doesn't matter to you, um, immune neglect is another cycle, social side term that's very true and very real. That that says that basically you're conforming to yourself, and what you're doing if you're not around other people is you're developing a kind of thought that's fast, cheap and easy. It's fast because you don't have to consider other people. You're all alone. It's cheap because it doesn't cost you anything emotionally or, you know, leaving your house, going and visiting with friends. That's work, right? You have to put yourself in, you know, to a relationship in order for it to work. If you're so cheap meaning that you're not extending or giving anything of yourself in the relationship and easy meaning that it's all about you and you're the point. So, man, 
as an only child growing up, one of the things I liked about being an only child was that I got to keep all my stuff. And I was kind of like feeling sorry for my friends that had brothers and sisters, you know, before my parents got divorced and I had stepbrothers and sisters. I, I remember thinking that, like, wow, they have to share their toys. I get to keep mine all to myself. <laughs> there was a study about that, too. Uh, kids who, you know, are alone, I mean, the kind of, what do you call that, single parent families, the one child in the, in the household, um, not healthy, uh, addiction, more only children have addictions, whether it's single parent or with two parents, um, there's more of a rate of emotional issues with a kid who's raised as a single child than a kid who has brothers and sisters. That's an interesting study. I have to look that up. But um, immune neglect, if, if, if your psychological immune system, if you stay alone, you're more apt to get socially sick or be kind of quirky around other people. You you see people that, that you know, spend too much time alone. You put them in a social situation and they, they don't know how to act. They, they're kind of weird, right? Immune neglect can also happen inside of a, a clique of people, you know, like the, the, the Justin Bieber haters. <laughs> you know, there's those, there's those kids in the middle school, right? They're over there and they hate Justin Bieber. And there's not a lot of them, but they're, you know, they're antiquated, and they're a group, and they are, you know, militant about hating Justin Bieber and the people that love him. <laughs> so you see what I'm saying, that there can be that kind of immune neglect in a little group. We usually call them cliques in our culture here in the United States. They're called a clique. You know, in high school, you hear that term. Oh, they're the cliques, you know. They got that... The, the seniors are, you know, they're the preps and the jocks and the, the emos, you know, and the, the grunge rockers here in Seattle. Yes, there's still that kind of folks, alternative. Anyway, this is what this has to do with addiction. I'm something I talked about in early shows, right? Truth is, is ours, right? Truth, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe that right I'm, I'm a theist and truth is ours there's a lot of truth mind you but you know there's a lot of layers on the on the baseball but anyway this is just all right theology and and psychology or social science are not mutually exclusive is what i'm saying there's truth in the world which truth are you going to follow right which root is your heart going to grow deeply into? song is by Rush, and it is called Subdivisions. Um, love that tune. Listen, I'm going to end the show here. I'm going to do another part two on conformity. I just want to leave you with this for the week. Um, change 
is a heart thing, all right? Lasting change takes place in the heart, and it springs forth from there. That's just the truth, all right? I love you guys. Until next week, I'm going to leave you with that song um, by Crystal Myers again, because you have to do some business with God, all right? You've got to do some business with the creator of the universe and the lover of your soul who through pressure and pain and sometimes suffering through what we've done, through what's been done to us. Listen, there's a line in that song by Crystal Myers, Anti-Conformity. I've, I've changed. I'm never going to be the same, all right? It's something to think about. There's there's a heart level kind of a impact. There's a heart level decision that has to be made, or you can just run to throw another coat of paint on the baseball. All right. I love you guys. Uh, until next week. A uh, couple of announcements. Um, donations, man. I, I love you guys, man. If you could send a donation, I would really appreciate it. it even five bucks. All right. You know. Fast for lunch, I don't know, have a banana. Man, I would love that. I would be so awesome just uh, because these shows are incredibly time-consuming and um, the, the, my business is picking up with uh, – it, it, it sucks time. I'm, I'm, I'm constrained in time, and I have the freedom in my business to like not have to spend – so much energy on pizza, right? Bringing more pizza to more customers. I can actually peel some of that back because I'm self-employed and, and focus more on this, but it, everything costs money, man. I, I hate to bring that up, but it's true. I know we're in a tough economy, but, uh, man, if you could, could give, that would be great, but not just money. Um, also on iTunes, if you could do something non-financial in, in generosity and leave a review on iTunes, man, I would certainly appreciate that. If you listen on Stitcher Radio, give me a, a thumbs up, click the thumb button, right? Um, that would help out a bunch, too. I love you guys. I'm praying for you guys. Pray for me as well. Um, until next week, bye.